This is Jim Petrosini. Welcome to the Folksville Podcast. In our series of joint podcasts with Dr. Marv Langston and his smartfutures.org, we'd like to introduce Evan Dudek. Podcast number four will discuss the ongoing situation with China, provide specific details that are driving the Chinese leadership, and we will also provide some views on what we think the near-term future will hold. Welcome. Okay, so we're fortunate today, uh, Evan Dudek, who's my guest blogger and also now going to be our guest webinar speaker, is joining us to help us understand his views on China and the relationship to the rest of the world. Uh, Evan has a unique background of over 30 years of strategic support to large companies like Daimler, General Electric, Samsung, and others. And in addition to his Harvard MBA, he also is a PhD in philosophy from the University of Texas. So that helps him think big thoughts. So Evan, why don't you start out by just giving us a little bit of your view about the relationship between U.S. and China and where that's taken us. Uh, thank you, Marv, and it's a, a pleasure to be here. I've been thinking about China for a long time. I think I first wrote an article on China entitled The Coming War Between China and the U.S. before 9-11, because it seemed to me that the way things were going even back then, uh, China wasn't going to stand for Taiwan's independence for some time, but they they stood for a long time and that kind of disappeared. Uh, Not too many people took notice. But I think all the forces at work now have, have shown that uh, there is inevitable conflict brewing between the United States and China. And I think that's become part of the Chinese Communist Party mantra for a number of years now. And so uh, that's, that's why I, I have, I've pulled together some thoughts about what the current situation is between the China uh, the U.S. and the rest of the world um, recently. So tell us a little bit about uh, your approach and how you put all the information that you have on those uh, 10 guest blog posts that we have. Well, well, thank you. Um, so my approach in this case, and it's been my approach for a while, has I like to look at the forces at work. Uh, what are the big forces at work that... Uh, no regime, no nation state can afford to ignore. And uh, I try to look at as big a picture as possible in order to get um, a, a good feel for how soon and how um, violent possible conflict will be. Um, I think these are forces that are um, typically not controllable, although sometimes they can be channeled. Uh, they're, li- they're demographic questions, for example, the technology questions, uh, and of course, geographic location, economic needs, imports and exports. But I think an overlooked force at work is uh, the psychology of the, uh, of the uh, culture that one is looking at. So I have some of those on the next slide. And I suppose I can 
try to. Yeah, you can share it, I think. There we go. So I've summarized my view of the forces at work that propelled China's grand strategy on this slide. Uh, I've divided- It actually in, didn't come up, Evan, so- It didn't come up? Maybe when we're recording, it doesn't go into that mode. I don't know. Okay. At least it didn't come up on my screen. Do you have the presentation? Do you want to do it from your end? Uh, I guess I could. I could send you the most recent one just in case we have a version problem. Uh, let me go ahead and bring it up. Okay, let me try this. How about now? Oh, there you go. Now you're up. Okay. So um, apologies for the technical question there. So on this page, on this slide, I've uh, summarized what I think are the major forces at work. Um, and I've divided them into internal forces at work and external forces at work. Uh, and I've divided the internal forces of work into what are the strongly held beliefs in internal to China? And what are some of the internal realities that the Chinese Communist Party and the nation as a whole have to face? So among the strongly held beliefs are that China has this rightful place in the world as its center, uh, the Middle Kingdom. And that I believe is a firmly held belief that is being reinforced through the educational system as well as just something that people grow up with. Uh, from my travels in China, that seems to be the case. Um, we all know about the grievances that China harbors against the West and against Japan. Uh, and of course that's been going on for a couple of hundred years. And then there's the preoccupation of the communist Chinese party, the CCP, to retain power, which of course every regime wants to retain power as much as possible and power sharing is not really in their DNA. So then that's kind of the mindset and added to this mindset are some uh, boil, boiling up psychological factors. So with the kind of um, degeneration or morphing of traditional communist uh, uh, theory and its replacement with the kind of uh, hybrid with capitalism, the Chinese Communist Party has found it necessary to stoke nationalism uh, to the greatest degree it can. And we see that, for example, in the movies that are being promoted, certainly the slogans that uh, the CCP uh, blares out all the time. And we have, in addition, the unfavorable demographic trends. I was just reading recently that uh, uh, first we had the one-child policy, uh, and then we had the two-child policy, and, and now that is being uh, um, thwarted by women. Women are just not buying it. Uh, you, they're not going to let the government tell them when to get pregnant and how many kids to have. So uh, that impacts 
the labor force and the ability of China to uh, uh, support the uh, emerging majority of people that are uh, of retirement age and the elderly. We also I think I have, I have to acknowledge that, you know, um, China goes through cyclical financial crises just as they accuse the capitalist countries of going through them. And that's mainly due to the fact that the, the, the state-owned enterprises, as well as private enterprises, accrue a lot of debt. And the reason they accrue a lot of debt is to make sure that employment is full. And the reason we need to have full employment is that we have throngs, millions of people flocking to the cities. So in order for the CCP to stay in power, there's been a grand bargain um, struck between uh, the people and the government where the people basically have traded off their uh, liberties um, and, and provided loyalty in return for jobs. So that's one of the reasons that China, by the way, is an export powerhouse is that these people all have to do something and money is cheap. So they do stuff and they export it. Isn't, uh, it, isn't it becoming more and more true that they're trying to grow their own consumer economy internal to the country to help offset their need for exports? I, I th that's that, that seems to be the case. Uh, the question is, how do you do that? How do you turn people into uh, consumers and what that would look like? Because once they become consumers, they become empowered and they want things. And it's been, as far as I know, the history throughout history, the uh, middle classes uh, want to accrue power. It'll be interesting to see whether the grand bargain will work with the middle classes as well as well for the population. The, uh, in the West, the enlightenment was driven in large part by the rise of the middle class uh, with the end of feudalism. You were talking about feudalism a few minutes before, ago before the program. And that's one of the things that happened. But you know they may succeed. Uh, I'm, you know these are these are not the kinds of things that have mathematical certainty. So I just want to make a point about your sure. demographics conversation because uh, you know we still have a lot of people on the planet that think that we're going to grow too many people and not be able to handle 11, 12, 13 billion people. But the reality is every time people start moving to cities, they quit having children. And the only thing that modulates that is how religious they are. Um, and I recently saw a podcast that talking about Elon Musk speaking about demographics, population demographics. And he was making the point that we're going to have a, a population catastrophe in the, in the next 50, 100 years because people are going to quit having babies pretty much altogether because they won't feel like they want to put up with the, the hassle and the need. And it yes. won't be enough to populate the planet the way we're currently running. Yes, I mean, I think that there's a great danger of that. I mean, I see it all around me. Uh, people choosing not to have kids. So I call this an unfavorable demographic trend for China. Be, um, the point being that these internal external forces suggest that China will want to do something about its problems sooner rather than later. 
So that's what we'll get to. But yeah. um, I, I don't know whether Elon Musk is right or not. It, it, it's you no, know, it's a question. It's a matter of degree. It's a matter of how many. Sure. Uh, there are, I did a, a project for a um, large maker of fasteners about 10 years ago, wanted to know where uh, they should locate their newest factories. And that resulted in an exploration of uh, birth rates and so forth around the world. Um, and there were some astonishing numbers uh, of, of birth rates in Africa and the Caribbean and Latin America and Indonesia uh, that I think are gonna change the way the whole world looks. Um, but, but Musk is right. And I think all the studies have shown that the wealthier a country becomes, the fewer uh, children uh, they have. Um, and this, I think, can, can cause uh, instability. Um, yeah, for sure it will. So one other question I had about your slide here is, um, sure. I always hear about the 100 years of humility that the Chinese seem to be aware of and are thinking about, and, and their goal would be to create 100 years of control and push us back to, to humility. Is, is that something that's part of the mindset you're thinking about? Uh, sure. And I think what it is, is that it's, you know, it's the story we tell ourselves, right? Don't you think? I mean, and, and if you keep telling you that's the story that you're a victim or that you're oppressed, you're going to uh, choose courses of action that uh, tend to substantiate that or verify it or, um, uh, you know, are consistent with that kind of a point of view. Now, the the question is, I guess you could argue everybody gets humiliated um, and we have the world as it is today. Uh, we don't have the world as it was in 1850 or, or, or before. So, uh, I mean, what good is that point of view? But their point of view is, well, uh, we had the greatest civilization for a couple, 3000 years and our rightful place is to regain that uh, center of power and attention and, and adulation. And I think this is stoked by, stoked by the Communist Chinese Party for its own purposes. Hey, Evan. So where, oh, go ahead, Jim. I was going to say, where, where's the Belt and Road strategy fit in this? Is it, is it part of that overall growth idea or is it are they, or that do you think they're admitting it's a failure and it's not going as well as they thought it would well apparently it's not going as well uh as they thought it would because people are getting wise to what its real purpose is uh, uh the view i've put elsewhere is that belt and road is part of the effort to develop a chain of military bases and to develop economic leverage over key points on the globe, maritime choke points and others, um, and has, uh, and, and to some extent to buy allies, uh, all, all are part of an effort to isolate the US uh, from the rest of the world. And uh, whether it succeeds or not, remains to be seen, it seems like some countries are getting 
uh, wise to, to uh, uh, the idea of letting uh, uh, the Chinese military get a footprint. Uh, but of course, the, the game for most of the third world countries is to play off the big powers one, one against another, get what they can from each. And uh, the Belt and Road is uh, taking, advantage, taking advantage of that to the, to the extent that, uh, that they can. They get as much out of China as they can um, and think that they can um let uh, control how far china gets its nose in their tent uh, that remains to be seen so how does this all play out in terms of a timeline for the united states so we, we see a lot of aggression in the pacific we've got sure. this taiwan thing over sort of overarching concern right now we got uh, new relationships which moving forward with japan relative to them going from both being defense only towards offense and working with our our military. Where do you see all this going? So so sure. Um, the next slide shows my guesses as to where these trends are going and the timeline. Um, and my timeline is probably a lot more aggressive, meaning that we're going to have trouble with China sooner rather than later. And the reason for that is, is that, in fact, the United States is getting wise to what China is doing. Uh, Asian countries such as Vietnam and now India are getting wise to what China is doing. And so the window of opportunity, given the demographic problems in China um, and the uh, need for uh, the Chinese Communist Party to fulfill its promises to retake Taiwan and so forth, that, that these things are gonna to come to a head sooner rather than later. So this slide shows, and it's, it's too much to go through now, that I see over the next one to four years uh, that payment is coming due on the Taiwan unification promises. So they're talking about, some people are talking about 2035. I think that's way too far out. And the reason for that is, is that by 2035, uh, any alliances, anti-China alliances will have long since coalesced. So the window of opportunity for China is closing. I've mentioned the nationalistic emotions that uh, the state has sponsored inside China. There's a belief that the US military is stuck in tradition, but, but there are indications that uh, it's becoming unstuck. It just will take a, a bunch of time for the, the unstuckness to result in changes in strategy and technology. So, and then China has a lot of confidence in its technology and space, medicine, so forth. Uh, they believe in the Marxist tenet that quantity has a quality all its own, uh, which was one of Stalin's favorite quotes and China has quantity. So, and so forth, nuclear, uh, delivery systems, and they, like the Japanese before World War II, they believe that the United States is preoccupied with its domestic problems right now, and this is the time to take advantage of our internal weakness. So, but Evan, what uh, are the numbers that on the? Isn't it something like only ten to twenty percent of the Chinese people have moved into the rich class or the new? 
nouveau riche entrepreneur class? Uh, yes, and I, I, I take it that that's the case. Um, from what I understand, they, there are still a huge reservoir of poor people in the, in the you know, that are farming and uh, almost subsistence living. Um, but, you know, it, all they need is the numbers that they have now in order to uh, leverage uh, their manufacturing, uh, their technology. And um, those people who are moving into the middle class are all gonna want things and they're gonna want jobs and they're gonna want some freedom. So that is also, I think, um, suggesting to the Communist Party that it, if they're going to move, they need to move now. So, Evan, what do you what do you think is the event? Is it a is it a accidental situation just based on things happening, and or is it or is there a or are they going to like is there a, a strike that's going to happen, or are they going to actually try to take over Taiwan? Uh, well, that that's a good question, and. Um, I don't think there are accidents. There are accidents if you choose them to be accidents. Let's suppose something happens. Let's suppose two aircraft hit each other or collide or there's something like that. You can choose to treat that as an accident or you can choose, that, choose to treat that as a cause of spell, as a cause of war. And uh, it's not, it's inconceivable to me that there hasn't been a lot of planning uh, in Beijing about how to take over, for example, Taiwan and the six, six ways to do it and which one will be the best and when is the optimal time to do it. I'm sure that has been wargamed and thought out thoroughly. Uh, so then it's just a matter of finding the opportunity to, uh, to do that. I, I also think that one of the things that's going on with the um, continual provocations, uh, invasions of Taiwan's airspace and the maritime uh, provocations is that they are trying to find out a way to get the United States uh, to fire the first shot for the propaganda value that will have. In particular, the propaganda value involved in keeping uh, the Europeans and other Asian countries uh, neutral in any kind of such, such conflict. But I, 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 you know, there's, Barbara Tuckman wrote about how World War I came about through alliances that uh, involved the ultimate uh, cascading of events towards the cataclysm of World War I and was nobody's fault. But there's been an awful lot of evidence that, for example, that World War I was designed and manufactured and delivered in Berlin. Uh, they, the Germans were aching for it. And I think we see the same thing now. Um, the Chinese are aching for it. And I think the forces at work suggest that uh, they're gonna try to fulfill that goal sooner rather than later because ultimately 
uh, the forces at work are negative for China. So, but to that point, um, you know, with the Soviet Union, we never had economic ties, which made it much easier to have a cold war with them for all those years. Mm -hmm. With all these strong economic ties we have now to include the new concerns about supply chains and et cetera, uh, you don't think that that can help mitigate war between the two countries? Uh, I think that I think that companies like Apple and Nike, if they could, would like to mitigate that. But I think uh, history has shown, I think I have a slide on this. Um, let's go to that slide. Uh, I, I think history shows that in the end, ideology and belief and so forth trump economic desires and expectations. There's a lot of talk, for example, about the economic causes of the US Civil War, uh, the economic causes of, of World War I. But in the end, I think it's ideology that governs. I've tried on this slide to take a balanced and fair view because I know there are some very brilliant people like George Friedman of uh, Geopolitical Futures that believe that the economic ties are so strong that uh, China knows it would be foolish to go up against its biggest customer, the United States militarily. I just don't see any um, support for that in, in my reading of history. And so, uh, sure, it's a force against uh, economic interdependence is a force against conflict, uh, open conflict. I just don't think it's strong enough to overcome the other needs. It was foolish for the South to break away economically from the United States before the Civil War. It was foolish for Germany to uh, start World War I. Its biggest trading partners were, partners were France, the UK, and Russia. So. I, I just think that it's just not strong enough. Uh, it's kind of like a covalent bond. It just isn't strong enough to counteract totally the other forces at work that suggest a, a much closer um, timeline for a conflict. I guess as well, humans, we don't want to believe the worst, right? We, <laughs> we're eternal optimists. I, Jim, I think you make a, a good point. This is hard medicine to swallow. You're right. I mean, who wants to believe this? Who wants to deal with it? Who wants to make the investment? Talk about economics. Who wants to make the investment in, in a whole new panoply of military technologies or even you know, the financial uh, resources to counteract uh, the Belt and Road Initiative? I mean, you know, the Latin America has been the, oh, the sore point of American strategy for a long time. And yet we devote almost no attention to it because it's, it's painful, we don't wanna do it. So I, I, that's an exaggeration. We, we devote attention, but we don't devote money. Yeah, we went to the uh, Olympics to in Brazil. That was about it. That's, yeah, yeah. It will send in the Marines and, uh, and, and, and introduce some regime change. And that's, that's about it. Uh, well, also to your point, Evan, Victor Davis Hanson, one of my favorite uh, authors and speakers, uh, claims that almost all wars throughout history have begun because of miscalculations on one or both sides, 
the rising powers often miscalculate the the will of the in-place power, and the in-place power often miscalculates the power of the rising power, and it ends up leading to wars and then the results of those wars. Maybe that's what we're looking at here. I, I think I think uh, Victor Hansen uh, makes a good point. Um, uh, you know, miscalculation is an interesting word, though. Definitely, uh, the Germans miscalculated at the start of both world wars. Japan miscalculated at the beginning of World War II. Um, I think the South miscalculated how much um, the North was determined to uh, keep the Union together. Um, uh, that sense is miscalculating. It's just, we just have to be wary that miscalculation also does not necessarily preclude premeditation. And I think we have plenty of premeditation going on. Uh, so what do you see, Evan, sure. as a timeline that might relate to Taiwan, which is obviously a firecracker fuse for anything that could be bigger than that? In my view that we're talking about, uh, let's see if I have a slide on that. In my, in my view, we're talking about the next few years. Uh, and why do I say that? I say that because Taiwan right now is fairly well armed, but they have not uh, really trained. They don't have enough trained manpower. Uh, they have low su military supply stocks. They're kind of depending on the US. In the meantime, the US is beginning to realize that we have a big threat here. Uh, there's still a lot of dissension and confusion, which you guys know better than I do, inside the US as to what military strategy, what procurement strategy to use and, and how to deploy those resources. There's a big fight about budgets. The US is also running enormous deficits uh, and trying to, you know, <laughs> usually it's the military that takes the brunt of the cuts. And then when it doesn't, one could argue whether the use of, of monetary resources is the wisest. Um, so for all these reasons, the window of opportunity in my view for China is, is happening in very quickly in the next 36 or 48 months, not, not 2035 or 2045 or anything like that. Now, that being said, I was wrong the first time. I was wrong in, um, 2000, when I thought that there would be a conflict over Taiwan, but now the both the rhetoric and the maritime and air activity in the South China Sea and in the Taiwan Straits has has really gotten to the point where it could happen anytime. So that's that's my view. And it, when it when it happens, will it'll be so sudden? We'll be we'll be surprised. One view of history is that uh, the power that holds the most naval capability is the power that controls the power in the world. This is simply driven by the fact that so many goods are transported across the oceans and the oceans, because they don't have land, they just have open vacantness, they can be controlled with powerful navies. And so 
if you look back at the history of the world, Britain was the most powerful nation on the planet when they had the biggest navy on the planet. Before that, Spain was the most powerful. So we've been very powerful with our navy that grew up out of the Second World War. But now we do see China with more ships than we have today and, and with their uh, great gray ships or, or uh, fishing boats and commercial yes. boats that yes. get wrapped into their military capabilities, you could argue that they have a better naval power than we do, although not quite as global. Uh, I think that's I think that's right. I think that 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 reading of history is is very instructive. If I go back to my uh, uh, slide slide, yeah. So uh, so my my thoughts are that the Belt and Road Initiative uh, and China's diplomatic diplomatic initiatives and its naval power are at least designed to ward off the US naval power uh, along this belt here uh, with the maritime choke points shown in purple and here's a big one in red. Um, they need to do that to secure their um, food supplies and their energy supplies uh, and to keep the US at a distance. So those are all essentially naval efforts. Now, they have the advantage of interior lines, right? Because they just need to work on this space. But the United States has global responsibilities and global vulnerabilities. So um, it has to uh, uh, split its resources uh, between the Atlantic and the Pacific. Uh, and I would argue Latin America. Uh, in the future and potentially Africa. Um, so it, it is a maritime issue. I think England was strong with its Navy because it was the most economically productive country on earth for much of that time. And therefore they could afford it and they were motivated to do it because they were uh, you know, an island nation. So they were motivated uh, and they could af uh, afford it because the individual English worker was more productive than anyone else in the world. Um, and then the question is, how does the United States fall into that kind of uh, uh, scenario? Um, we have been very productive, but now we're up to our neck in debt. Uh, we are focused on other things besides military uh, superiority. Um, and who can, who can uh, really say that uh, a rising power with internal, um, uh, the, uh, the advantage of uh, in, uh, interior lines can't prevail at least in its region, which is in the big square um, for a long period of time. Yeah, that's true. So we've, we've been going about 30 minutes. I think we probably ought to start wrapping it up. Jim, did you have any more questions? And we can. Yeah, I, I was just going to comment. I've, I've heard one view. It's kind of like 1940, 41 again, where Roosevelt just kind of ignores things in Europe. So, you know, we, we may just ignore China with, if they provoke something, we play it down because we don't really want to get involved and it'll take major things to happen before we actually do something. Um, it, it has somewhere a repeat of the beginning of World War II in, in Europe. 
Uh, Jim, I think that's absolutely right. I, I often think of this as being 1938 or 1939, but it's the same idea. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the forces at work are there. You know, in World War, before World War II, did, Germany was driven by ideology to do what it did. And maybe by the thought that, well, if they don't do something against the Russians now, then they, it's just gonna be a bigger problem later. But uh, it was an ideology thing. And I think we have both the ideology and the promises that China has made to its people to uh, thank for the uh, upcoming uh, conflict. Well, Evan, I want to thank you for your time, and I appreciate all of the good research you're doing and the things you've already shared on the, the blog for people that want to read further into the, these comments you're making. And uh, maybe we need to return to a part two or three one of these future weeks. Uh, we, we'll play that out as we need to. It would be a great uh, pleasure. Thank you for your time, and thank you for all the work you've put into your blog and to your, um, your website and, and your thoughts. Thank you, Jim, for your time as well. Oh, thank you, Evan. Look forward to the next discussion. Okay. Bye-bye.